Hey, welcome again to First. My name is Daniel. I'm one of our pastors. We're really grateful that you've braved, like, what is it, snow, sleet, whatever is going on out there, and have joined us for worship today. And as Aaron mission, we're in the middle of this series, The Bible Doesn't Say That. And uh, I'm in this unique position in life where I'm always having conversations with people who are claiming to have wisdom about God's word, either because they're just having a conversation with me. And sometimes people try to act like super Christian around a pastor. Can we be real? And so this is one of the things that I hear a lot of the time. And folks will come up and they'll say, oh, you know where the Bible says, fill in the blank. And it'll be some statement of profound wisdom. And a lot of the times I hear that statement that you just saw come across the screen. God helps those who help themselves. And maybe we just sit on that for a minute and figure out, is that helpful or is that not helpful? Maybe you should try this this week. Just your boss, your spouse, hey, God helps those who help themselves the next time they ask you for some help. I'm sure that will go over completely well. You could try that with your dog too, and I'm sure that would go really, really well. Look, I'm not sure how invested you are in this idea that God helps those who help themselves. There's a lot that goes behind that. But the big thing we want to do is not just say, oh, no, the Bible doesn't say that. We actually want to bring out the tools that Jeff did such a great job introducing last week and see if we pull out these tools for reading the Bible, if the Bible actually teaches this idea that God helps those who help themselves. Because here's the thing. You're not always going to have a Q&A session with a pastor where you can pit for pat, just like have a conversation about stuff like this. So we need the tools to discern what the Bible is saying. So check this out. This is what Jeff talked about last week. We talked about context, which is really just the story behind the story. If you were to open up a page of like Harry Potter just and read one extracted page of that, it wouldn't make sense. You need to know the context around the little selection of text that you're reading. And so that's a tool we're going to use today. We're also going to use this nerdy word, biblical theology, which is just, again, a super Christian way of saying letting the Bible read the Bible. A lot of the times our confusion about what God's word says just has to come down to the fact that we haven't looked throughout the whole course of the Bible. So we read some obscure text and are really confused when a lot of the time all we need to do is look at what the Bible has to say about this thing in totality. And then finally, we're going to use the Christ lens tool. And this is so important because we don't just read the Bible in a flat way. Because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, we get to view the Bible through that lens. And I think that's going to be very helpful for you. But can I just give you a little nugget of advice? Before you have spiritual conversations with anyone about what is or isn't in the Bible, whenever someone claims something is in the Bible and says, oh, you know where the Bible says, and then they say something that's totally out there, it is almost never helpful to just respond, oh my goodness, are you, what are you talking about? The Bible, of course it doesn't say that. Where did you get that idea? Because a lot of the time what we do to people is we can play on one of two emotions in those situations. We can play on shame. We can make people feel guilty about the fact that they have misapplied the Bible. Or we can play on pride. And we can tell someone that something isn't from the Bible. And like me, you just get really stubborn and continue to try to make justification for the thing that you've said. Neither of those things are helpful. So here's what we're after. If we consider ourselves sincere followers of Jesus, or if in general you are just trying to seek spiritual truth and discern what the Bible is actually saying, we need to go back to the source material, we need to think about the story behind the Bible, the events of the Bible itself, and we need to look at Jesus' life and try to discern what the Bible is saying. So, 
I got a big question that we're really going to grapple with today, and it is simple. It's this idea, does God help those who help themselves? I think this is something that we've wrestled with at one time or another. Digging a little bit deeper, we got to understand, if this is from the Bible, where does this idea come from in the first place? Is it in there? Or does the Bible teach anything like this? And in general, I think this is going to be really important too. What does the Bible say about helping people in general? So, we kind of already let the cat out of the bag because Siri already let us know that the Bible does not say that God helps those who help themselves. It doesn't literally verbatim say that phrase if you were to do a Google search. But there's this really strongly written passage in the book of 2 Thessalonians that a guy named Paul, who we talked about last week, wrote that gives us this picture of where people get this idea over and over again. And so Paul was writing to this little Christian community in the first century of the Roman Empire in this village of Thessalonica. And so this question, does God help those who help themselves? A lot of people think that Paul thinks this. And this is the passage where we get this from a lot of the time. And I just want you to put on your seatbelt because this is kind of a firebrand passage. So here we go. Starting in verse 6, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. It says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and who does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to imitate. Woo! Try it. And this is where we get this idea a lot of the time that God helps those who help themselves. Paul says this, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. I want you to sit on that for a second. Verse 11 continues, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what's good. And he finishes it like this. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may be ashamed. That's a doozy. And on the surface level, it feels like Paul is being really clear. The, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So let's make this really awkward for a second. Could you imagine, like, if we had a sign up here at first as you're walking in on Sunday morning, and it's like, hey, if you don't serve here at first, the communion, the bagels, and the coffee, and the donuts, they're off limits. No one gets any of these things. It's awkward really quick. That was a joke, by the way. This is not what we're going to do. We're not, we're not initiating a new change out in the lobby next week. So I want you to think about this. Have you ever received a letter in your life, whether it's a love letter or have you gotten a letter from the IRS? I'm sure some of us will be getting those in the next couple of months. You're welcome. Just enjoy that. We get all these different letters in life from all different kinds of people. And I want you to imagine if we just took 10% of that letter and tried to pretend like we understood what was going on with that passage. That's essentially what we just did with the book of 2 Thessalonians. We took a little controversial piece of that passage, a piece of that letter, 
And a lot of us are going to take that and say, oh, God helps those who help themselves. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. I mean, really, Paul seems clear enough, right? No worky, no soup for you, you know? I, I wish that would make sense to more of you than it did. <laughs> Just YouTube, the, the soup Nazi. You're going to want to look that up. Look, I want you to think about this. Imagine you just moved to Champaign, and you are a real go-getter. You're an entrepreneur, and you're starting your own new business. And so you're trying to get the word out there, and so you think, you know what? People go to restaurants. I'm going to go to the restaurants and try to get the word out about my business. And so you go to all the places along Prospect. You go to all the places on campus along Green Street, and you go to all the joints downtown. And at this point, you're just getting the word out. And it's going relatively well. You're making some good connections, but you've got this really bad habit. You've got the selective habit of not paying for your food. <laughs> and so at all these different places, whether you're just grabbing the food at the counter and then running out the door or just forgetting to pay the bill once the bill comes to you at the end of the meal, you just aren't paying for your food in all these different places. And you're starting to make a name for yourself, right? Now, for whatever reason you thought things went really well and everyone really loves you because of the first interaction before you dined and dashed. And so about a week later, you circle around to back all these other different restaurants and you go in there and you ask the manager at each of these places, hey, you know, can we put up this flyer for my business? What, are, you, are you kidding me? No, they're going to kick you out. They're not going to let you back in there again. You don't think you're going to get negative Google reviews before your business has even started and gotten off the ground? It would make no sense for us to just stroll in to a restaurant and pretend that because we were just gracing this community with our new business that we should deserve food to eat. Now, flashback 2,000 years. You've got a guy named Paul who has had a personal encounter with Jesus. He used to be a persecutor of the Christian faith, and now, because of a personal encounter he had with Jesus, he is sold out to the mission of Jesus for the rest of his life. He wants everyone to know that Jesus is alive and that he is the true king of the world. And so Paul, he lands in this little community called Thessalonica where hardly anyone has any knowledge of Jesus, none whatsoever. Would it make sense for Paul to go in there and because he was carrying the words of truth, the gospel, to just expect these strangers to provide for him and his traveling expenses? No. It wouldn't make sense whatsoever. See, because Paul, he couldn't take for granted that in a community where there were hardly any people who believed in God, no less Jesus, and had a well-established system of religion, that they were just going to be like, ah, oh, yes, this Jesus guy, he's awesome. No, because in the midst of all of this, it just wasn't going to make sense for him to do that. He had to let his walking do the talking, or in this case, he had to let his working do the talking. See, Paul, he is so serious about the mission of Jesus that he would even look at a community of Christians who are just coming to faith. He's so concerned about the reputation of Christians that he wants people in the church, in this brand new church, not to associate with people who feel like they're obliged to just take stuff from others. So this is important if we're using the context tool. Paul, he's not making a statement about work ethic in general. 
He's making a statement at the way people look at Christians from the outside looking in and whether or not they're going to take seriously the faith that they hold. I mean, even a little bit earlier, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, the first letter to this community, and he had this to say about the lives that Christians should live. He said, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Look, Paul wants Christians to work hard not because we're trying to earn favor from God, not because we're trying to legitimize who we are in God's sight, but because it matters when people take a look at a Christian that they be somewhat different and maybe even more exemplary than the average Joe. And so with all that said, if we're going to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus, no one is going to take this idea that Jesus is king seriously if all the Christians are lazy and entitled and think they're better than everyone else. So, does God help those who help themselves? I think we ought to be honest and say that's at least not what Paul is talking about in that first passage. But he has more to say of this idea of helping people. He wrote another letter to a community of Christians in the region of Galatia. And you got to imagine, this is 20 to 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. The word hadn't gotten out yet. And so Paul is talking to these people who are just coming to an awareness that Jesus is the king of the world. And he wants them to share the good news, so he has this to say in Galatians chapter 6. Paul says this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And this is going to sound familiar to that first passage. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, this is so important, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Tell me if you can complete this sentence. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Not everyone was paying attention in sign class. I'm sorry about that. That is not in the Bible, okay? That was Sir Isaac Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. But the Bible, more accurately, the Apostle Paul has this to say, and it's kind of familiar. A man sows what he reaps. So if you're doing biblical theology, if you're looking at the entirety of Scripture and you want a principle to rely upon, Paul lays out that throughout the Bible we see this. We live in a sow and reap world. We live in an action-reaction world. And let me be really clear, this isn't karma this isn't like God's out to get you if you do too many bad things or the boogeyman's out to get you if you sin one too many times. What we're talking about here is that we have the ability as humans to act and have reactions for there to be actions and for there to be consequences. And like every kid with behavior issues learns, there are good and there are bad consequences, right? And so in this mind frame, the flesh is this metaphor for acting in such a way according to our own personal autonomy, doing what we desire to do apart from God's guidance. And it manifests in sin. 
It manifests in broken relationships with God, broken relationships with other people, broken relationships with the world that God created and said it was good. But we can also sow according to the Spirit, the source of all wisdom, the life that is truly life. And so Paul leans into a bunch of people who feel really weird because they believe that a Jewish carpenter rose from the dead and is now the king of the world. No one's necessarily taking their faith seriously. And Paul has this to say to that group of people. Keep waiting on the harvest. Keep doing good. Keep sowing those seeds of goodness. I know those seeds in the dark, cold ground, it seems like they're never going to sprout up. But I promise you, there is going to be a point where they become a seedling and then a stalk. And you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness if you don't grow weary in doing good. I wonder if you ever get weary of trying to live your life differently than the average Joe. I wonder if you ever get weary of trying to live in such a way that legitimizes the faith that you say that you stand for. And look, it's true. There are ways that we can live and receive favor in life, right? We just talked about an entire series of wisdom. We just talked about the reality that with God's wisdom, it transcends the year of 2019. But with that said, we kind of dance around the issue when instead of thinking about sowing good, we start asking the question, well, does God help those who help themselves? Look, maybe he does, but that isn't really a question that the Bible begs us to ask. Because when it comes to our relationships with people in general, a lot of the time what we do and we waste our time doing over and over again is trying to figure out who is worthy in the first place of God's help. So regardless of how God helps people who help themselves or not, this is resoundingly clear. In our relationships, our command as followers of Jesus is to do good to everyone. Because if we follow Jesus, we don't have a do-good limit. Now, i got to ask you, do you ever feel emotionally conflicted about doing good? I mean, a lot of the time I hear the teaching of Jesus that you shouldn't allow your left hand to know what your right hand is doing, or however that is exactly stated. And I find myself, instead of just giving in a natural way, I find myself trying to break down in my mind in quick moments whether or not the person on the side of prospect on the interstate ramp is worthy of my benevolence. I spend time worrying about whether the person who's coming into church on a Sunday morning or who comes into our office on a regular basis looking for assistance, whether or not they are worthy of help. I'm sitting there trying to parse through in my mind who is worthy or isn't worthy. What I do in my community to serve and to love and to be the presence of Jesus where I live, work, and play, I constantly find myself analyzing what opportunities are actually worthy of my help. Look, I'm not here to answer every moral dilemma that you have about entitlement and about helping others. I'm not an expert on socioeconomics. I'm not walking around in your shoes facing the dilemmas of who you're supposed to help and who you're not supposed to help. But what I am thoroughly convinced of is that we got to tear down this false image of us looking to be the judges of who is and who isn't worthy of God's help in our world. Because every single human being that we encounter is a living expression of God's creative joy. 
someone who is deeply cherished by God. He gave the breath of life to their lungs. So if we follow Jesus, our call is to do good, period, because this is the big idea that I'm being so convicted by, because God helps people, period. And the good news is, is God doesn't just help people, but he's looking for partners to help in the process of helping people. Because people helping people, it's always been a part of the mission of how people have learned to surrender to Jesus and become more like him. So, Paul, we've talked about him a bunch. He actually had a really good friend and traveling companion named Luke, who was a doctor. Doctors help people, right? When I'm sick, you can find me at the Curtis Road Clinic trying to alleviate my man cold, you know? And so, there's this doctor who's really good friends with Paul, who undertook to create an entire account of everything that had happened in the life of Jesus that there was to know, all the way through the movement of the early church. And in detailed, painstaking fashion, Luke wrote it all down just so he could tell one friend, Theophilus, about the good news of Jesus. And so Luke, he goes into tiny detail about Jesus' birth. He goes into tiny detail about Jesus' baptism. And then when we get to Jesus' first words of public teaching, Luke shares something incredibly profound. So because Jesus' first words, they actually weren't his own. They were the words of his father through the prophet Isaiah. You can check this out on the screen. This is what Jesus' first words of public teaching were. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is bold enough to say that because I'm here, these things are reality. They're not just going to happen in some distant future, but this is the reality when God shows up, when the human embodiment of God shows up. See, this is good news for the most beaten up, left out, and overlooked people. This is good news for the people who are more commonly political talking points than they are viewed as humans created in the image of God. Yet, I hear Jesus saying this, but I'm conflicted because he says this is reality, but I still see people oppressed. I still see people in prison. I still see people helpless. No less to think about our lives personally. If Jesus says, I'm here to liberate, I'm here to help, then Jesus, what are you doing in my life? I mean, how many of us have sat there and said, God, where were you when I got the call about that person who passed away? Where were you when my rent check was due? Where were you when I was at the end of my rope, full of anxiety? Were you actually there? Or do you have selective vision? Because if you say you're help and hope, I feel like you've missed me. If that's the honest questions that you're grappling with this morning, I think surprisingly, you might be in a better place than you think you are. Let's move to our time of response. So, Jesus, when he shares those words from the prophet of Isaiah, he's not just speaking into oblivion. Jesus is actually doing a little biblical theology. He's allowing the Bible to read forward. Because not only is he referencing the book of Isaiah, he is actually referencing the book of Leviticus. 
particularly this concept of Jubilee. Now, some of you may be running across this if you've endeavored to read the Bible in 2019. You're probably like smack dab in the Leviticus right now wondering how in the world this is applied to anything. Well, Jesus seems to think that Leviticus and this concept of Jubilee are so important. When he talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he's referencing this thing in the law code that when Israel inherited the promised land, that if they inherited as a family property, that if they ever lost it for any reason, if they had lost their dignity or status, every 50 years there would be a proclamation of jubilee in the land of Israel and everyone would get their stuff and their status back. If someone had become so indebted that they had to sell away their family land, if they had been forced into economic servitude, which is kind of a fancy way of saying if they were functionally slaves, every 50 years people were relinquished from the weight of their mistakes that had made them destitute and they received back the inheritance that was given to them by God himself. And I don't know about you, but as a good old pull yourself by your bootstraps, Western capitalist American person, the idea of everyone just getting their stuff back does not square with the way in which I view the world. I mean, I look at God saying every 50 years there's going to be a jubilee, and no matter how unwise people have been with their resources, no matter how undeserving they are, they get back the land and the status that was handed to them as people of Israel. And that's crazy. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. No less when I look in the New Testament and I see that the early Christians made it a practice to give away all their stuff, to sell everything they owned, and to pull it together and to ensure that there are no needy persons among them. That blows my mind. But over and over again, when I come back to the Word of God, when I allow the Bible to speak to this idea of helping people, what I recognize is that God is far more generous and people who are compelled by Jesus are far more generous than I'm comfortable with. And so maybe, just maybe, if we allow ourselves, there's more room for us to become generous and helpful like the God who we worship. Let me pray and we'll set up our time of response. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for an opportunity to lean in and to really consider what your word says about helping people in general. God, I am the worst offender of all. I am constantly judging the worthiness of other people. I pray that you would help us to get outside of that trap and to be the type of people who respond in obedience to the opportunities you give for us to help and to serve. We want to be little reflections of your son, Jesus. Let it be so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to make this really practical. And so there are a few things that we are leaning into in order to become more generous. Aaron and Joel talked a little bit earlier about the Illini Christian Ministries book drive that's occurring. And so out in the lobby today, you can go out there and pick up one of those little hearts, and it has links to resources that you can buy for children who need those educational resources and who do not have a community of support around them. I take for granted the fact that when I went to college, my parents supported me, that to this day, I have adult parents who are healthy and 
even late into my 20s will continue to support me? What would it look like if we were the church and we were a hand of generosity to people who are just trying to give an opportunity to learn in life? That table is right out by Guest Central in the Next Steps booth. I would really encourage you to pick up one of those hearts and to take that tangible step to be a helper in that way. Still yet, I was talking to a friend the other day having lunch, and I was so convicted by the generosity of this man who attends our church. He talked about the fact that he sets aside his money to be generous to the church, and he sets aside an equal amount of money to be generous to people when God brings those opportunities up right in front of his face which is so incredibly compelling to me because a lot of the times I think I'm tapped out just because I'm being generous to my local church. And although that matters, it's important for us to be prepared to be generous when God gives us the opportunities as well. When it's all said and done, what we're after is becoming the type of people who when God gives us an opportunity to help, to serve, to give, that we're not processing it through whether it's reasonable or not but that we are so concerned with being obedient to Jesus that the perception of how that plays off with other people is something that we're not worried about. And we allow God to clean up the rest of the mess, if there is any. So, if you're new to first, we use this time to practice and put into living action what it would look like to respond to who Jesus is. And so our central practice is what we're going to do is called communion. There are six tables surrounding this room. If you're new to first, what we'll do is we'll move to these tables as we worship and respond. You can take the little cup of juice and the little piece of bread and partake of those and put the empty cup in the buckets on those tables. This is an opportunity for us to recognize that while we were helpless, Jesus was our help. We'll also be generous and give. You'll see people drop their gifts and connection cards off at the give and respond boxes. Some people will be on their phone using the Give app. Thank you for your generosity and the way you're propelling the mission of Jesus here at first. Finally, there'll be an opportunity for you to pray. Maybe today is an opportunity for you to lay yourself in front of God, whether at your seat or at one of these prayer benches at the front of the auditorium, and just say, God, who do you want me to help? My heart's been closed off to be in the church where I am, God, help me to be a helper to the people you've uniquely placed in my life. Now, with all that said, we're going to prepare to respond in this time. Would you stand with me? The thing that smacked me in the face this week that was the ultimate kibosh to this idea that God helps those who help themselves is the gospel message itself. Paul wrote this to the Roman church. He said this, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to encourage you, don't judge this book by the rumors. When you take out the tools that we've been talking about and when you dive into this yourself, you'll see a God who's so merciful and so gracious and who is willing to go to any length to rescue you. And so today, as we worship, my prayer is that as we glorify God, we would allow our worship of him to spill out in love to the people he's placed around us where we live, work, and play. Let's worship and let's respond.